Garrett. Welcome to another edition of The Last Negroes at Harvard. Our guest is Brett Forrest. He is a national security reporter for the Wall Street Journal, where his investigative work focuses on the former Soviet Union. In the Russian-Ukraine war, Forrest was the first reporter to reach the town of Bukha and uncover evidence of atrocities. His new book is titled Lost Son, An American Family Trap Inside the FBI's Secret War. The book is about a young American lost in Russia, an FBI cover-up, a mystery leading from Washington to the heart of the Kremlin's war in Ukraine. I'm joined by 14 of my Harvard classmates. Bill Collins. Grew up in the Boston area, Harvard 63, physics, went in the Navy 20 years, ended up in South Carolina to work at the South Savannah River plant. I'm not working there anymore, but we still live here. It's a pleasant place. Aiken, South Carolina. Okay, Jerry. Good morning. I'm Pasadena, California. I grew up in the black segregated Washington, D.C. Um, actually, it was a lovely place in which to grow up, believe it or not, although we didn't have any money. So I'm an environmental lawyer, spent a couple of years in the Peace Corps, have worked for the state government, federal government, nonprofits, trade associations, et cetera, and still working. <laughs> okay, John. Oh, hi, uh, John Woodford grew up in Benton Harbor, Michigan, on the other side of the state from Ann Arbor, where I am now, and spent most of my time um, writing and editing for here and there. Peter Grilly. Um, yeah, I'm class of 63 originally, but graduated in 65. Um, I grew up in Japan, and most of my life's work has involved Japan in one fashion or another. Uh, business, a lot of nonprofit work, uh, cultural exchange, that sort of thing. And I'm very much looking forward to hearing your talk this morning. Okay, Alden. Uh, Alden Briscoe, uh, born in Mass General, but and grew up in Connecticut, but now live in uh, San Mateo, California, just south of San Francisco. Uh, my wife and I have a company which consults with nonprofits in uh, fundraising and executive search. Okay, Peter. One of the things about Harvard, of course, was always the people. The main thing was the people that you met there, the interesting people. So Kent's group is uh, just an ongoing experience of that. And I, I'm i an editor and writer. <clears throat> I started out as a journalist and switched over to writing novels. And uh, my editing work is in uh, college textbook production. Hmm. And uh, I used to work on 30 or 35 college textbooks a year. Now I I just keep going to keep my hand in with, <clears throat> with six or seven of them and try to keep the reading experience of college students fairly enjoyable. Hmm. Okay, great. And um, I grew up in New York City and Providence and majored in Russian history and lit but then uh, segued into becoming a clinical social worker. I went to grad school in Berkeley in the 60s, and that kind of blew my mind in lots of ways. Um, and uh, I've been a, a psychotherapist, uh, first with Kaiser, then in private practice, uh, working a lot with uh, post-traumatic stress disorder. And um, 
Uh, yeah, I enjoyed the, uh, I, I'm currently taking a class in critical race theory. I'm really interested in the, the journey of Black Americans and white Americans in this country and in the world. And so I'm excited about being here. Okay. Uh, Doug Shapiro. Um, hi, uh, Kent and everyone. Um, uh, I live in Louisville, Kentucky. I've uh, spent, uh, uh, I actually lived in seven different countries, but uh, most of my career, about 20 years, was spent uh, in the Graduate Department of Marine Sciences at the University of Puerto Rico in the southwest uh, corner of the island, uh, now here in Louisville. Okay. George, George Jones. George Jones, currently living in Ann Arbor, Michigan, spent most of my career as an academic scientist and administrator, and a early happy Father's Day to all of the fathers. <laughs> great, great, great. And uh, Hamp. Hampton Howell. Uh, I live in Nashville, Tennessee. I'm originally from New York and uh, Long Island and uh, Boston. And I have a sister in Providence, Anne, that I visit with a lot. And uh, uh, I'm a clinical psychologist here in uh, uh, Nashville, and I'm still working. And I just learned that I have some neuropathy today, which is like long axonal weirdness in, in your uh, uh, nerves. That's it. Okay. All right. Uh, Mason. Uh, Mason Morford. I live in South Freeport, Maine. Spent most of my life doing uh, land conservation. I've now been involved for a couple of years now in uh, fighting climate change, and I've had neuropathy for about 10 years. Uh, Marcy. I, I run Clean Air Campaign, and it's Open Rivers Project in New York City. And uh, I'm being driven mad by the world as it is today. Dorothy. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, I'm Dorothy. I live in Belmont, Massachusetts. I'm deeply rooted in New York City. Uh, ran Youth Build for 40 years. Um, and uh, I am interested in us being active in our 80s to fix the world that is driving Marcy and all of us crazy. <laughs> Lots of luck. <laughs> and Brett, welcome back. Thank you so much for coming and tell us about your new book and about your life, et cetera. Boy, well, that's uh, it's quite an introduction there. Great to see all of you again, some of you again. I uh, was on here once before and Ken, thank you for having me back. And uh, yeah, so I'm, I'm a reporter at the Wall Street Journal in our Washington bureau. As you can see behind me, I'm just sort of mm -hmm. Just stepped away from my desk um, to speak with all of you and and hear your thoughtful questions um, and to talk about my new book. Uh, it's called Lost Son, and it's uh, the story of uh, a young man named Billy Riley, who was from Michigan and uh, worked for five years with the FBI, sort of as a freelancer, as something called a confidential human source, which we'll get into later. And in uh, 2015, a year after the war in Ukraine began, he went to Russia and he disappeared there. And shortly after he disappeared, his FBI handlers came to his parents' house in Michigan, outside of Detroit, professed to know nothing about the trip, began confiscating devices and shut out the family. So it's really a story of how the FBI transformed after 9-11 into an intelligence agency, began scooping up people like Billy Riley, 
and discarding them. And it's a story of a family's search for the truth in the U.S. national security state. It uh, The book gets into the deterioration of uh, U.S.-Russia relations in the beginning of the war in Ukraine. Uh, it's a story of Billy Riley himself, a young man who came of age after 9-11 and how that uh, experience diverted the path of his life. And finally, it's really uh, also a story of my own search for Billy because I took up the case myself and went to Russia in search of him. So uh, thank you all for coming today and would love to discuss the book with you. Okay, John. Well, I read the book and I can't, I must commend it very highly. I don't, I, I don't agree, it's like a, it's a mystery and it's a tremendous job of sleuthing and writing. The book, I could, you know, you. You can hardly put it down once you get into it. It's like a, it goes like a novel, really. The, the character of Billy, you know, Oxford, Michigan happens to be the place that another kid, I think Ethan Crumbly, shot up the school um, just a couple years ago. And so partly this fascinating character of Billy, I think they call these people, these young men who don't have any girlfriends or much contact and live on the internet i can't there's a name for them i can't remember oh, what it is in incel incel yeah well i mean billy's you gotta say he's something like that but he's he's uh he doesn't seem to be crazy like some of them but who knows what he was he uh so i'm i don't want to ruin the story for anyone because i say it's like a it's like a mystery we do know that he comes to a bad end um and as far as there's a whodunit aspect of it, but along the way, you learn an awful lot about the intelligence services and police services, especially the intelligence and, and um, national police forces of two um, big countries and who's caught in between them. And so that's part of it. Uh, I will say that I, if you guys start reading it, You'll finish it. <laughs> well, John, uh, thanks. Thanks for uh, the kind words about yeah. the book. There are a couple of things I'd like to add. First of all, boy, I'm, when I'm discussing the book with folks, I'm really trying not to give away the ending because mm -hmm. um, I want to preserve the reading experience for folks who do pick it up. And, um, you know, John, you didn't you didn't, uh, you know, share the disclaimer that's really important here. And that is that, uh, <laughs> okay. John, John was one of my, maybe my first editor. Uh, paying for a paying gig way back when I was a student at the University of Michigan and, and John was an editor with one of the publications there. Um, so whatever he says about me, don't believe it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Tell us about process. I mean, how long did it take you to do the book and uh, that sort of stuff? Yeah, that's a great question. I mean, there's so much that we can discuss in this book, and that's uh, that's one element element of it that I th I thought would be quite interesting to readers, and that's why a good portion of the book really is sort of uh, kind of a reporter's notebook. You know, it's um, that the book is structured into into two parts. Uh, the first part is sort of Billy's Billy's story, and uh, and and you know, and the family story, and then the second part is when I enter the story. Um, and I enter, enter it in December 2017, and that's when I was in the offices here where I am now at, at the Washington offices of the Wall Street Journal when I got a phone call from a source, an American man, a uh, banker, 
who I'd known for a little while, and he uh, he had deep contacts and experience in Russia and Ukraine. Um, and he knew about this case, and he had been trying to help the family, but he really he really couldn't, not in a way that was safe for him. And he thought that I might be able to help because I lived in Moscow for five years. I lived in Kiev as well. And I had been working at that time in those countries off and on for about 15 years. So that's when I started. And I got to know the family throughout 2018 and onward from there. Um, the book started as an article in the <laughs> Wall Street Journal, which published almost two years after I picked up the case. So that's that's irregular here. I mean, we're really more focused on the news, you know, it being a newspaper after all. Uh, stories that take that long are rarely happen here. Um, but my editors thought it worthwhile and uh, supported me. Um, and from that point on, it, my thoughts turned to turning it into a book. But the article published in November 2019, you know, and here we are in the summer of 2023. So you can see how long this process took. We might say that Billy, you know, Billy wanted to go over there. He really learned Arabic and Russian on his own by being on online. He wasn't a really a, a great student, but uh, it's interesting that he, in Oxford, Michigan, which is above De Detroit and not a noteworthy place, really, you might say, but here this kid is an, uh, seemingly an average student in high school at best, but he's actually a mighty smart fellow. So he gets interested in the Middle East. He teaches himself Arabic and then he begins to go online and and interface, interact with potential terrorists or Arab nationalists and uh, goes on from there to pick up a little Russian. So he, I mean, he wants to be an FBI man. <clears throat> this is, well, yeah, I think uh, that's a good way to describe it. He, you know, like I said, he he was in high school when 9-11 happened. And it, we all remember what that was like in the country. Um, we were all asking ourselves, who was responsible? Where are they now? How can we get retribution? Well, Billy wasn't asking those questions. Billy uh, took a trip with his family, a road trip to Manhattan um, shortly after the attacks. And, and they saw... You know, he saw 9-11, he saw the ground zero uh, with his own eyes. And he started to ask himself not who was responsible and where they were, but but why they had done it. You know, he wanted he wanted to learn more deeply uh, the history and the motivations and the reasons possibly behind the attacks. And and he and he followed this inquiry just at the time that the Internet itself was in its own adolescence. And uh, and he was able to find his way uh, into chat rooms and places that that his fellow students, the local, you know, at the, at the Catholic school where he was going, certainly, you know, weren't weren't doing, um, and they weren't finding. So, he a year after nine eleven, he he was telling his friends that at his Catholic school that he had converted to Islam, and he could be seen at the back of the classroom reading the Quran. Very interesting character. I mean, he was of European descent, raised a Catholic, um, and here he was accepting a whole new way of life. Um, and uh, and his his internet traffic caught the attention of the Detroit office of the FBI, and they came knocking, 
asking and they asked him what he was doing. And when he explained it to them, they were actually quite impressed. And they asked him, you know, how about what would you think about doing it for us? Hmm. Let's say his sister also then converts and and marries uh, uh, an Arab. It's quite fascinating. Yeah, that's right. That's right. Uh, she she younger she's sister. a couple of years younger. Um, you know, she became a physician, and um, and as you said, married an Arab Muslim from well, he was living at the time in the Dearborn area, um, and this caused a great consternation for the parents who didn't understand it and struggled to accept it. You know, at the same time that she was uh, pursuing that relationship, you know, Billy was pursuing his own relationship with the FBI, which was secret to almost everyone. Um, He joined a program called the Confidential Human Source Program, which a lot of Americans don't know about. Um, Of course, we, we know about the FBI's use of informants, right, and cooperators. We've all seen the movies and TV shows where they're you know, they're pressuring some guy who's under indictment to, you know, to, to wear a wire and go back to his criminal associates and gather evidence that can be used in court, right? Well, after 9-11, that program really changed because uh, Capitol Hill and the administration were mandating that the FBI do more in its usage of sources to help prevent another 9-11, right? Um, and that's when the FBI really left its uh, moorings, really, as a law enforcement body and started to become an intelligence agency. And it used informants and cooperators and cooperators in a new category called confidential human source. And they started scooping up people like Billy, who knew languages, who understood ter- terrorist groups, who were adept at uh, the digital life. And, and they sent them out into the world to uncover intelligence that could short-circuit criminal and terrorist conspiracy before they happened. What were the numbers there, I mean, in in terms of that program? Yeah, we can only really speculate because the FBI hoards that information, does not share it. Um, And, uh, you know, I think you could safely say it's in the thousands or perhaps Mm -hmm. tens of thousands. It fluctuates, of course, as confidential human sources or as they call them, CHSs or are um, signed up and and discarded. Um, but uh, it's a fundamental part of an FBI case agent's work. I mean, it, they're supposed to really have a, at least a few of these people going at a time, each agent. Um, and uh, yeah, I mean, that's, it, it's, it's, it's an interesting evolution because as I mentioned, FBI agents have always used informants and cooperators. But after 9-11, it really became, it, 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 they underwent, the program went, underwent a huge expansion as, um, <laughs> as they started sending these people, collecting these people and sending them out into the world to do a different kind of job. Mm-hmm. Doug? Uh, yeah, given uh, your many years uh, living in Moscow and in Kiev, um, I can't help but wondering what your thoughts might be about the current war and what its likely outcome is to be. Do you mm-hmm. think there's any real risk of uh, that this could could lead to a more global uh, uh, war? And, you know, what's your view of all this? Yeah, um, great question. Um, yeah, I, I can't remember exactly what we spoke about uh, last time I was on here, but and so this might be sort of redundant, but but I uh, I was in Kiev last year when the war began. 
and for the journal. And I covered the first few months of it and came back to the U.S. and, you know, went back to Kiev last year again. And so last year I spent a lot of time uh, covering the war. And, um, you know, so I saw a lot of that up close. And uh, for me, it's been very personal given my history in those countries. But what, uh, you know, to your question, what what's the forecast here? It's, it's very difficult to know, and I'm sure you understand that. Uh, we're undergoing right now the the long-awaited Ukrainian counteroffensive, and um, you know, some people might have thought that that would show immediate results, but that's just not the nature of things. I think this, the counteroffensive itself will take a while, uh, and it will be even longer, I think, until we know what kind of lasting or permanent effect it might have on the war and uh, impact it could have on uh, eventual peace talks or negotiations. I, th- I still think we're very far away from all that. One fundamental reason is that um, I think to some degree, each side thinks it's winning and it's hard to bring the two sides to the table when that's the case. And, um, you know, we just continue to see death and destruction and without any real foreseeable ending. I mean, the the thing, one real sticking point here is that Ukraine um, really does need security guarantees. And so that's why you probably, if you're, keeping a close watch on the news, you're seeing increasing talk these days of Ukraine joining NATO. Um, The U.S. is so far sort of holding out against that, but a lot of uh, the European members of NATO are pressing for it, especially those who are located more geographically, you know, geographically closer to Ukraine. Um, But the thing is, you know, even if even if Russia agrees to stop the war, Ukraine knows that they that Moscow could start it up anytime they want in the future. So that's why Ukraine really does need these security guarantees. And it's just very hard to see how that could be put together. And how much influence do you think uh, the U.S. president has over uh, the outcome of all these things, and especially looking towards the future? I think I think the president, U.S. president, does have quite a lot of influence when it comes to the issue that I just mentioned, security guarantees. Um, I don't, and, and of course, uh, the president has great influence in terms of the uh, military aid that the U.S. supplies Ukraine, as you've seen, and as everyone predicted, including myself. You know, right when the war began. Uh, that the war has become and is becoming a greater uh, political issue w- with the presidential camp uh, election um, on the horizon. Um, you know, for some reason, this is just the way of things. And it uh, you, you could imagine a situation very easily where whereby uh, Donald Trump or another Republican candidate wins the office next year and begins to draw down U.S. military support for Ukraine. Um, so I, so yeah, I think this is one of these cases where the president does have quite a lot of influence on what goes on over there. Mm-hmm. Mason, uh, getting back to the uh, CHS, are these government employees? Are they paid? Do they get government benefits? What's their status? Hey, that's a great question. I'm glad you brought it up because I forgot to mention that. And inter- interestingly, these are not employees, and that's that's one reason why they they're sort of they have a special value to the FBI. Um, because there are things that CHSs are encouraged to do by their FBI handlers that um, FBI agents themselves 
sometimes you know legally cannot do. Also, uh, CHSs sometimes do work that shields FBI agents from potential future um, uh, uh, testimony in court, being called to testify in court. You know, so, so it enables FBI agents to to sh- continue to shield their identities. Um, you know, these people. It really depends. There's so many of them, and and they have such different quality and value. Um, some of them are authorized to receive more than a hundred thousand uh, dollars per year in a, in a sort of salary and compensation. These are the people who are who are the most valuable, who have access to um, you know, high level criminal or terrorist conspiracy. But most of the people, like Billy, you know, they're they're paid infrequently. They're paid very little. Um, and their expenses might be covered, but that's kind of about it. Um, and uh, and that raises a host of issues, not the pay so much, but just the uh, their status. Because, um, you know, if you're an individual and you're taken in by the FBI, but in an unofficial capacity, you know, you're, you're really vulnerable and you have very little recourse. Mm-hmm. Jerry, <clears throat> going back to Ukraine for just a minute, um, I think one of the excuses that Putin used to invade Eastern Ukraine was kind of what Hitler used in World War II in terms of the Sudetenland, that these were Russians and he was just protecting the Russians. I do not have a good feel for what percentage of that population really is loyal to Russia and Putin and really do not want to be part of Ukraine. Yeah, um, the your reference to the Sudetenland is apt. I mean, that's what I've been telling people for you know, about a decade, uh, exactly that. You know, this is the Sudetenland uh, argument all over again. And it didn't hold then, and it doesn't hold now, uh, in my view. Um, you know, I, I spent quite a lot of time in eastern Ukraine, um, a lot of time before the war, before 14. Um, you know, in, in the big cities there, the, the some villages, the coastal vacation towns. Um, I know a lot of people from that area. Uh, it was never my feeling that these people were loyal to Russia. These people were Ukrainian citizens. They, um, everybody there spoke Russian, but everybody except for the, the far western west of Ukraine spoke Russian. Um, uh, they certainly, I think, the, the closer you got to the Russian border, yeah, there was there was a greater sort of affinity maybe for Russia, for Russian culture, but. You know, this this is how the world is, right? We had oh, the countries and the border areas. There's always some kind of overlap, right? Um, but the thing, the, the very the key thing to remember here is that um, Russia at, in 2014, when uh, when war began in eastern Ukraine, told the war told the world that this uh, was an uprising of locals, right? Yes. And now we've seen. Um, uh, with the clarity of some years, that uh, that that indeed was not the case. Yes, there were some local people who um, uh, took advantage of the situation, but um, the but the Kremlin itself flooded the area with uh, intelligence agents, uh, regular army, and other operatives, and not not to mention uh, tanks mm-hmm. and other weapons, small arms. Um, without the Kremlin. The Kremlin's support and uh, and activity there, there would have been no war. Thank you. Uh, Hemp. Yeah, Brett, uh, I'm interested in uh, sort of how we're all human and stuff together and how we can 
other and alienate each other. And it's uh, very interesting how much of that happens between North Americans and uh, Muslim populations. And in, in some ways, we're very close. It's no accident. There's, there's a lot of Muslim people here. A lot of them are very well integrated here. And uh, uh, or there was the closeness with the fighting in Afghanistan. And on the, on the other hand, there's, there's uh, ways that we're all horrified at each other, <clears throat> you know, with the beheadings and uh, uh, the uh, how disgusting or whatever uh, a, a lot of uh, Muslims can appear to find people fr uh, from our culture. And I, I just wondered if you had any thoughts about how people reach across that successfully. Oh boy, that's kind of a big topic, isn't it? Um, I'm challenged to know where to where to begin to to answer that. Um, you're 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 asking sort of how uh, people from different, uh, extremely different backgrounds uh, can can get along. Is that, am I understanding you correctly? Yeah, but th there are maybe some 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 more extremeness. There, even at the same time as as there was all of the closeness, like the uh, Afghans that work closely with Americans in uh, Afghanistan, for example, mm -hmm. and the the Americans fought like hell to to bring them here. Right, right. Uh, at, at the same, well, I'm, maybe... I'm, talking, I'm talking personally also because uh, there was an Iranian guy that I was very close with, and we used to work out together regularly. And then after years, I, I made a joke to him. Uh, he had no children and his wife had a daughter who lost her uh, husband. And I joked to him that, that they should make a baby together. And that was it. <laughs> that was it in, 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 out of nowhere, you know. That was the end of the friendship. Best yeah, friends. Yeah. And, and then I was intolerable to him from that point on. Well, maybe I could just share a sort of uh, anecdote from the the Riley story, the story of Billy and his sister. Yeah. I don't I don't know if this would be applicable, but it might be. Um, so, uh, as I mentioned, Billy Riley and his sister Katie, you know, they were of sort of mixed Polish and Irish descent, um, Catholic, growing up north of Detroit, uh, a pretty homogenous town, Oxford. And John, you can back me up on that. I think. Um, and um, they they struggled there because they they wanted more from life. You know, they they had their interests were much broader than that. Um, they felt stifled in Oxford. And, um, you know, we all, I'm sure many of us know that Dearborn outside of Detroit is is you know, has the largest Arab Muslim population in the United States. Um, and you know, they're there's quite a good percentage of sort of uh, white folks in the Detroit area who, who look at that area as kind of other. Right. Yeah. And, um, and when, when Billy and Katie converted to Islam, they, they began spending a lot of time there, you know, and, and Katie ended up, as we mentioned, marrying a man who was living in Dearborn and the thing, and this is sort of more to your point. The thing that I found fascinating when I was doing this reporting is that, um, you know, whereas a lot of 
people of European descent around the Detroit area looked at Dearborn as kind of backward, Billy and Katie saw something completely different in it. What they found is they found a lot of people who knew about the world. <clears throat> they had traveled widely. These were people who spoke multiple languages. Many of them had come from academic backgrounds and were quite educated. Um, you know, they they had uh, access to knowledge of uh, to knowledge of different cuisines, like for example. Um, so you know, Billy and Katie found a lot of the people that they were going to school with kind of you know didn't just didn't know a lot about things. But people in Dearborn were actually quite worldly, so yeah. they discovered something totally different there. I I want to get back to the to the FBI. Yeah. Sure. Uh, and and. Looking at the FBI is a little bit like looking at a tennis match. You're sort of going back and forth. I mean, I think a lot of us were kind of shocked when at, at, at the discovery of what they'd, the FBI had done with Martin Luther King. I think uh, some of us felt that they had done relatively well in the Russia investigation, uh, any collusion with Trump. I think uh, people were shocked when Comey was fired. I think uh, that now we're, we're hearing that... Uh, uh, they're all terrible people because uh, Trump is. They've they've done terrible things to Trump. Um, I, can you can you give us sort of, sort of background? Are they are they completely off the track? Is the FBI completely off the track here, or are they are they sort of doing okay? Or what, what's what, what? How can you comment on that? Yeah, it's a it's a big topic and an, an important one, right? Um, and it's something that is just since Trump started running for office or very shortly thereafter, it just has been in the news, right? Just this idea of competence. Are they competent? Are they compromised? What are they really all about? Right. I think that's kind of what you're getting at. Um, yeah. 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 There's so many ways to discuss that question to try and answer it. And I'll, I'll venture a few thoughts here. Um, you know, first of all, I would say that just the FBI is a large organization with thousands and thousands of field agents, and it has even more staff, that, you know, people who are like back office or translators or, or you know, and then they have all these thousands of uh, CHSs like Billy. Um, so when you when you have something that's that large, you know, you're going to have a, a big mix of people, a big mix of um, of capabilities. Now, I've, this isn't the only FBI case that I've reported on. I've sort of ducked in and out of FBI stuff for a number of years. Um, and uh, and I've come across FBI agents in various places around the world who are really good at what they do, um, who understand the responsibility that they carry, um, they, hard workers, intelligent people, right? But I've also encountered kind of the opposite, uh, people who just maybe aren't so good at what they're doing. Right. Um, and, uh, you know, that, that, that's sort of one fundamental piece to understand about the Bureau is that it's just there are people there who just, you know, unfortunately aren't aren't great at it. Um, um, you know, the other thing is that you, I think it's helpful to look at the FBI some some major events in the FBI's history. And I think this would be sort of instructive now. And um, because the FBI, it's like they, they've gone through a series of um, sort of scandals, so to speak, when they've overstepped um, their legal limits, let's say. And then they've uh, that has inspired congressional, uh, <clears throat> um, which has then um, put shackles 
on what the FBI can do. But every time we've seen this happen, very, very shortly thereafter, there's some, some kind of new national emergency that gives the FBI greater license. I'll give you a couple examples. So we all remember probably uh, in the 70s, the COINTEL program. Um, that was the program that was that uh, sort of endured great mission creep because it it, it, it ended up going after sort of like the left um, writ large. Um, and that inspired the, the church committee hearings on Capitol Hill, which, which put a clamp on the FBI. But shortly thereafter, what happened? There was the war on drugs. And the FBI made a successful case that they actually needed broader license to go after, um, you know, uh, South American drug traffickers who were coming into the country. Um, the Whitey Bulger case was another terrible, terrible uh, mistake for the FBI. You know, the, the former head of the Irish mob in in, uh, in Boston, uh, you know, he was a high level FBI source. He had uh, upended the dynamic of the relationship with his FBI handlers and had involved them in crimes, including murder. And when that came out, the uh, Janet Reno, who was the attorney, attorney general at the time, she put severe clamps on the FBI's usage of informants and cooperators. What happened after that? 9-11. And 9-11 was the signal failure of the FBI. I mean, the FBI is in charge of counterterrorism and counterintelligence, and they could not have failed in, in a more spectacular way. Yet what happened right after 9-11? That Congress and the Capitol Hill allowed the FBI to greatly expand its responsibilities. Um, so, you know, I, I, I think maybe you're also asking, is the FBI political? it's very hard to know. It's very hard to know. I mean, they're, they're sort of like damned if they do, damned if they don't in this political environment, I think. So it is a tennis match. We're going back and forth. It, it seems that way to me. Yeah. Yeah. It's, um, you know, I mean, they look, the FBI, a lot of people say question the FBI's the, the need for the FBI to exist. Right. I mean, imagine if it wasn't there. Um, uh, I, I think that the F I personally think I'm not an opponent of the FBI, and I personally think that uh, the FBI, some of the things that it does are necessary for our country. Um, but uh, like all huge agencies, you know, there's just a lot of fat that could probably be cut off. You may not be able to comment on this. I don't know. But whenever I hear this, I mean, I'm, I have a military background and I, of course, we all read spy stories. And there's the thing about the mole, you know, the the double agent. Right. And I would think that there'd be some sort of process to try and ferret those out and avoid them. And when you have this informal relationship with informants, there might be a real opportunity for that kind of thing. I don't know if you can comment on that. I uh, Let me see if I understand correctly. You're talking about um, uh, uh, an like a sort of uh, belligerent nation or spy service sending someone you know, in, into the FBI as a CHI, yeah. you're saying? Especially with these informal kind of arrangements. Yeah, yeah, yeah. no, I mean, it, it does happen and it has happened. There are documented cases of it. I can't call the gentleman's name to mind right now, but there was actually quite a quite a prominent case. Uh, and I'll, I can send it to the group afterwards, um, a link to it, because it's a really interesting case of uh, a Middle Eastern nation. I think it might have been Egypt. I'm not I'm not sure, but um uh, that they they sent a guy to the United States who had very interesting uh, military experience and connections to 
folks sort of in the terror world, so to speak. And the FBI scooped him up and made him a source, made him, you know, an informant and, and paid him quite well because uh, they they thought he because he did have a lot of valuable information and he was feeding them stuff that they found useful. Um, but after a number of years, it, it, it became clear that he was a plant. Um, and, you know, you get at, at something that's actually more fundamental, a fundamental fear of FBI agents because they need CHSs to do their work. Uh, the job of an FBI agent is to find intelligence and information and evidence that resides outside the Bureau and then bring it in and plug it into the U.S. Uh, intelligence sort of network or uh, and or you know use it for uh, prosecutions, DOJ prosecutions. Um, they, they really, to do that work, they need CHSs. They need people who are out there in the world and have proximity to crimes, to criminals, to terrorists, to conspiracies, right? It's pretty, pretty clear. But um, because they need them and because they're, they're in this gray zone, uh, they can pose a real threat to the FBI and to FBI agents and to FBI agents and managers' careers. Um, I mean, the, I'll go back to the Whitey Bulger case. I mean, that, that's the sort of crystalline example of this, uh, this problem this risk that they all face, FBI agents. I mean, Whitey Bulger was in many ways a perfect informant. I mean, he he knew what was going on in the criminal underworld in Boston, um, but he he used that relationship against the FBI. And that that's something that a lot of FBI agents even today like use as an example. And they're always fearful. When is this guy going to start lying to me? And when is this guy going to turn? Or is he did he was he sent here by somebody else um so they're always they're always trying to feel for something that doesn't feel quite right and and the moment to cut the person off well in lost son then i mean the fbi they are the bad guys as such in your in your book or how would you characterize them mm -hmm. good question good question um um yeah, I, you know, I don't, I, I don't look at it like that. I, I, you know, I'm a reporter, so I, I'm not here to make judgments. I'm here to collect information and present it to you, and you can judge. Um, I will say that the FBI, uh, if I was to take a step back, I kind of as a reader, the FBI doesn't look particularly good with this case, um, not because of anything that I've said or put together, but just simply by the way that the agents and managers have behaved. You know, they have not been forthcoming with the family. Um, they have, in fact, directly lied to the family about their knowledge of Billy's Russia trip and activities there. Um, and, uh, you know, they they could have done a lot more, I think to to assist the family in the in its search for answers and, and in, in addition you know there i learned about my interest in the case and that i was working on an article for the journal um they contacted the family for the first time in years and they said they had new information right and the family was really encouraged but over many phone calls and meetings the family ultimately learned that the fbi was not interested in sharing information it was simply interested in enlisting the parents to try and stop me from writing the article. So the FBI seems time and again throughout the, this case just was always doing the wrong thing. Well, I would say to me, the impetus of an organization like the FBI is to 
evolve into a police state if they had their way. So if there are no restraints on them, I don't think that this uh, action that they were doing with Martin Luther King was really all that anomalous to what they started doing, even from the nineteen uh, from their their from their birth under Hoover with the Red Scare. So this is what they do, and a, a police apparatus. If it's not restrained, what's it going to turn into? I mean, and and that's why the church committee finally tried to put them under some kind of restraint. And of course, they're going to, and they have the impetus to, of course, to, to get their budget and their authority mm-hmm. bigger and bigger and bigger, like any bureaucracy. So, so I think we have to always be hoping that there's going to be people who, who, um, go against them out of our political leadership and um, put them in their place and keep them from doing what they do. Because not just in the United States, around the world, the police apparatus behaves in remarkably similar ways. Uh, So they're a threat to to democracy if they get out of hand. They can be defenders of it or they can be a threat to it. Yeah, I I wholeheartedly agree. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, and and, uh, uh, Truman actually had an interesting thought in 1947 or thereabouts. <clears throat> um, obviously, at the end of the war, the OSS was disbanded, and there was the question: Okay, who, who, which body in the U.S. is going to handle intelligence, uh, and and especially foreign intelligence? And Hoover made made a strong play for the FBI to take over those duties, since there was no more OSS, the war was over, et cetera. Um, but Truman and uh, probably the folks advising him, they, um, they, they sort of, they had a, you know, they, they were very wise, I think, in, um, in creating the CIA and bifurcating the responsibility. They said, generally speaking, they said, the CIA is gonna handle foreign, FBI can handle domestic. And, and one of the uh, reasons he gave for making that decision is he, he said that he didn't want the FBI to become a Gestapo, an American Gestapo. I mean, the war had just ended. We all had that. Well, not myself, but the United States, we had um, uh, you know that, that terrible lesson um, of, of what a, a, a police state or police force like that could turn into. Um, and, you know, and, and that is, that is why we need, continual oversight because you know a lot of people think of government as a monolith but it's not it's mm-hmm. not it's made of individual people and when we give people special powers like we give FBI agents a badge and a gun you know they owe us something in return and they owe us um, the ability to, to provide oversight on them and that's why that apparatus is there on Capitol Hill and elsewhere the problem is, that the FBI continually disregards and somehow wiggles out of oversight on Capitol Hill. I mean, I've talked to folks who've served on uh, judiciary committees on the Hill that are responsible for FBI oversight. And they told me that, you know, in, in, in committee meetings, uh, in hearings and closed hearings, even FBI officials are sitting before them, they're asking them direct questions and they never get direct answers. Um, again, I'm not an opponent of the FBI, I'm, I'm a proponent of uh, of oversight on on this and, and other agencies. Mm-hmm. George, so sort of a follow up question to John's comment and your response: What do you see as the future of the FBI, especially if Orange or some other Republican gets elected president? 
That's a great question. I mean, that's just one of the many things that we'll have to face if uh, if Trump is reelected, isn't it? Um, yeah, I mean, good. I haven't even thought about that, but that that raises a whole host of issues. Well, I mean, what do you do? There was an article in the in the New York Times today. Apparently, there, and I guess this is something that's 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 comes as no surprise. There are a lot of Republicans, especially in light of the Trump indictment, who think that the FBI needs to be blown up and 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 built up again from scratch. Yeah, yeah. Well, look, this isn't a new argument. It may it may be sort of a new reason to have that discussion. But after 9-11, uh, the same idea was being put forth on Capitol Hill. I mean, the 9-11 Commission had seriously considered uh, doing just that to the FBI and creating an entirely new agency in its place uh, built on the model of MI5. Uh, mm-hmm. I'm not expert enough to know the difference between the two, but... Uh, um, but that, that, you know, that, that's something that's been discussed before it didn't get very far in 9-11 with the 9-11 commission. Um, but this time around, see, back then it wasn't political, was it? You know, this time it's, it is political. It's fundamentally political. I think we all understand that a lot of folks in this country feel like, well, the FBI simply doing its job and, uh, the former president has uh, committed possible crimes and DOJ is, is, you know, is calling a grand jury and, and uh, this is how our system works. But then there are other folks on the other side who, you know, who feel like there's some sort of conspiracy. So yeah, I, well, I, I hope it doesn't come to that. I hope we don't have to see that. I'm not sure that's in the country's best interest. Um, again, I, I think that the FBI, when you're talking about counterintelligence, I mean, who's, if the FBI is not around, who's going to do that job? That's an important job, you know, counterterrorism. Who's going to do that job? Um, somebody has to do it. Hmm. Uh, Hamp, did you have your hand up? Yeah, I did. Uh, thanks. The uh, that's the first thing that you've said that I've disagreed with today. I I uh, like your perspective a lot, but I, I don't think we can forget the birth of the uh, FBI with J. Edgar Hoover and and all of the deceit and stuff. And and most of us like oh. to believe that 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 we're horrified by like the czars, <clears throat> police, or that. Uh, Iran Savak sent sent secret, sent like one undercover policeman with 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 every ten students or so that came here to study, and, and you know that's really antithetical to a lot of our nature, and it's kind of horrifying to uh, look at. At the same time, there's a, there's a to me somewhat minor theme of the FBI as uh, clean cut and uh, uh, just despite Hoover's predilections uh the 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 FBI would uh uh like we 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 have the old Jack Webb dragnet images of of the FBI and in some ways and in some ways I admire Comey and I think he's like a uh boy scout uh despite what he did to Clinton uh and and the uh it kind of represents America as like anti-authoritarian and authoritarian at the same time. Period. Right. Right. Yeah. No, I, I, I've, I've learned a lot about uh, a lot of um, terrible things that the FBI has done and is doing. And, and uh, that definitely do seem to me to be sort of un-American if, if that's a term we still use anymore. Um but I, I mean, I guess my, 
I do agree with a lot of your points. I guess my fundamental point is that there are jobs that the FBI does that need to be done. That's all. Um, Police too. Yeah. Yeah. And I, but you know, yes, I, I do believe they could be done better. And this case with Billy Riley in the book shows that um, um, the FBI makes mistakes. And when it does, it often, it usually doesn't own up to them. And that's not right. Um, you know, Billy Ryan, and um, when something went wrong, you know, they they froze them out. And that's not right. Aside from uh, sounding like it's going to be a great story, and I'm looking forward to getting it right away and reading it. I need a good book at the moment to read. <clears throat> it seems like a window on so many mystifying aspects of our present day life that Marcy was saying driver driving her mad. <laughs> and uh, it it does seem as as if uh, things get ever more murky. So it sounds like the book's going to be a wonderful uh, window on many of these uh, these uh, points of of interest. But taking the some of the questions about what might happen with them in the future, how near is the FBI to to coming to grips with the question of domestic terrorism and to and, and are we to really acknowledging that uh you know the muslim threat and so forth is kind of kind of faded in comparison to uh you know which is an outgrowth of the police state in the south uh back in our day uh, uh to to the uh, white nationalist threat that we that needs to be categorized and understood as such you know assuming that it's not going to take the over the whole country yeah no, good question. That's uh, that's an issue that uh, I think came to light, especially after the January sixth riots. Uh, it just so happened I I was up there on Capitol Hill when that was happening, uh, reporting on it for the Journal, just as surprised as everybody else and disappointed by it all. Um, but um, here's an interesting thing to share, and that is that uh, we all remember after nine eleven when. Uh, the FBI and, and a host of other federal agencies were given greater license and bigger budgets to um, to make sure that there wasn't you know a repeat of 9/11, um, and and there hasn't been. I mean, there, of course, there have been other terror attacks uh, in the country, but um, but I think what what the FBI and other agencies found was that there wasn't this other shoe that was ready to drop. Right? I think we remember right that. After 9-11, we were all fearful that that there was some larger plan afoot, but there wasn't, right? Or at least there didn't didn't seem to be ultimately. I think FBI discovered that, you know, there weren't a host of these terror cells all around the country ready to pop off. Um, and, uh, you know, with uh, Oklahoma City bombing and other similar incidents, I think you see that perhaps a more persistent threat is the one you mentioned, which is sort of a white nationalist or however you, you might categorize it. Um, yeah, the January 6th riots uh, are, you know, a lot of those cases are in the courts now. Um, but, I, you know, I've talked to former FBI agents who who said that they, you know, they sounded the alarm on this issue internally for years, but that it wasn't really taken up because a lot of the budgets and attention were going toward uh, counterterrorism, uh, the counterterrorism division. Um, so, yeah, I mean it. It's hard to say, I think, but uh, it, it, it's it's nothing so clear cut, I think. But um, but I, I think you could probably venture to say that um, you know that the the one threat is 
more persistent and, and greater than the other. Mm-hmm. I also want to add an in standing in relief to the story is the uh, the parents of Billy, a remarkably staunch and courageous and loving people who just seem to be plain ordinary, like plain ordinary Americans that people wouldn't notice. I think the father was a truck driver with an injury and the mother did mystery shopping or something. Uh, That's right. You know, where you go and shop. I mean, they're very... John, you're not going to give away the ending, are you? No, no, not. But but just that uh, throughout, I mean, the way uh, the bond you formed with them and what they had, they're standing up against the government as far as things go, you know. They're really, um, it's one of the achievements of the book, not to show what these people are like. It kind of gives you hope that just regular folks are gonna come through and and not knuckle under, they're going to be stalwart. And Yeah, yeah, I mean, their fortitude really impressed me and, and also inspired me as I did my own reporting and investigating in Russia into Billy's disappearance. The thing is that, um, you know, this happens every year that um, some uh, some American is lost abroad. And, you know, I don't want to just, I mean, it happens to people of all nationalities, of course, but but for our purposes of our discussion, we'll talk about Americans. You know, American, an American citizen is lost abroad and suddenly this person's family has to figure it out. Now, in in just about every instance, this family is completely unprepared for this thing. The family has no skills that are applicable to this new task, right? Um, what made it more difficult for the Rileys was Billy's aff- affiliation with the FBI mm-hmm. because they expected the FBI to help them, but the FBI actually thwarted their efforts and they were completely alone. Now, a lot of families in such a a dire situation after some time, you know, they, they might throw up their hands, you know, in frustration and fatigue, but, but the Riley's did and they kept going. And when I became involved, they really opened the door to me, brought me in to their lives while they were experiencing this terrible tragedy, shared everything they possibly could with me, including, you know, computer hard drives and things that were really rather intimate and personal. Um, and they, you know, and they soldiered on. Wow. Great. Yeah. Well, listen, Brett, thank you so much. So what's your next project? I mean, <laughs> <laughs> next project. Well, well, I got a, I had a few different things. I mean, um, I'm, I'm working on a, uh, interesting documentary project and, and, uh, and also, you know, I think this, this book would make a very interesting movie or, or TV series. Um, I think it's very adaptable. And so we're trying to figure out if they, we can, we can make that happen. But I'm also looking into, you know, a couple of different possible book ideas. That was Brett Forrest. His new book is titled Lost Son, An American Family Trapped Inside the FBI's Secret War. And that's it for this episode of The Last Negroes at Harvard. I'm Kent Garrett. You can hear more episodes on our podcast, which you can find on Apple and Spotify or from wherever you get your podcast. Our podcast also stream on WIOXradio.org every Thursday morning at 9 a.m. Eastern Time. Plus, you can read all about us in the book, The Last Negroes at Harvard.